Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. All right, good morning. I want to go ahead and invite you to open your Bibles with us, whether you are in person or online. Uh, speaking of online, I got to see that uh, Joel Bolton, who's actually one of our uh, probably longest um, members as far as when we met him about three years ago, uh, hasn't been able to come here recently and emailed me this week that he's having some health issues. And so, uh, Joel, we just want you to know we're glad you're tuning in, glad you were able to find the page this week and that we are uh, praying for you and everything that's going on there. And hopefully you can join us in person again soon. Uh, but go ahead and open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4 where we have been studying this small book all summer long and looking at, at God's mercy and God's grace as it relates to the life of Jonah, the city of Nineveh, and how it relates to us. Uh, this is our last week in this book, so if you've missed any of our messages, you can go back and uh, find them wherever it is you podcast. I think every single one's up to date with the exception of the one I'm preaching this morning, and usually it's up by Tuesday. So go back and listen to those and catch up if you missed any of the weeks or if you just want to go back and work your way through the book of Jonah. But here's the cliff notes of what happened in this book if you happen to miss any of it. God calls Jonah to go to the great city and evil city of Nineveh. And Jonah, instead, what he does is he rebels. He goes the opposite direction of where God had called him to go by hopping on a ship. And then this ship, uh, a great storm came upon it. They thought the ship was going to sink, and so they're throwing out cargo, and they're trying to get back to shore, and they just can't do it. And finally, Jonah raises his hand and says, it's because of me. It's my fault. And so uh, they try to get back. They can't. They, they finally throw Jonah overboard, and the storm ceases right immediately. Jonah thinks he's sinking to his utter destruction and death, and then the large fish or whale, as we like to think of, came and swallowed him up. And that could have been the end of the story, but it's not. Jonah spends three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, crying out for God's mercy one more time. And he receives it. And the fish spit him onto the land. And God calls him again to go to Nineveh. It's like God got his attention this time. He obeys. He preaches the Nineveh. Says there's going to be destruction and wrath of God's going to rain down you in 40 days if you do not repent. And they repented. They saw mass repentance happening. And then we see last week that Jonah gets angry with God for God being merciful and slow to anger and for showing his grace. And he felt that the, where he felt the Ninevites only deserved judgment. And so that's kind of where we left off last week. And now we're going to pick up this morning the rest of chapter 4. We're going to see this exchange happen between God and Jonah. It's like this, this last conversation that takes place. And we're actually going to see a series of three questions, which caused me to ask a few questions myself as I was studying this chapter this week. Have you ever thought about why God asked questions? Like we see this throughout Scripture. Like why does God ask questions? Because if he's God, doesn't he already know the answer? Like, you think God knows the answer to the question, although as a parent, I can relate a little bit. Sometimes you ask your child a question, you know the answer to it, you want to see, one, if they're paying attention, or if they're going to tell you the truth, or if they're listening. And so we see God asking these questions. Uh, Peter Williams, he says, God's questions are meant to teach us something, or to expose to us our inner selves when we are guilty of sin or disobedience. So whenever we read the Bible and come across God asking a question, we ought to ask ourselves, is God addressing that question to me? And if so, what am I meant to learn from it? And so this morning, as we look at these questions, don't think so much of God asking these questions to Jonah. Think of God asking these questions to you. Because it's through these questions that what we're going to see this morning is God's heart for the city, for what I call the masses. But it's also through these questions that we're going to see God's heart for Jonah, the individual. Because we see that God's heart is for the individual and he cares for the individual. That includes you and me. But then God's heart is for the city and for the masses of people. 
And so the main point of our message this morning, we're going to see is that God performs a lesson by delivering Jonah from the desert heat. So again, God's going to appoint something. He's going to help give Jonah some relief from something that he's experiencing, only to then revoke that deliverance later. And we're going to see Jonah again get angry at God over this reversal to expose his double standard, and it vindicates the justice of God's decision to spare Nineveh. So we're going to see once again this kind of God is giving some mercy and grace to Jonah, and then Jonah gets angry whenever God takes away. And so the, the two main things we're going to see this morning is first that unrighteous anger can make you hope for the judgment of God on others that you would not want on your, for yourself. And so I want you to think this morning, like, who is it in my life or what group of people in my life do I look at and say, they don't deserve the mercy of God, but I still do. And the second main thing we're going to see is that unrighteous anger can make you miss opportunities to be merciful the way that God is merciful. That you might have an anger and a bitterness and a callousness towards someone in your life. It could be a family member, it could be a friend, it could be a whole segment or group of people. And that you're so angry at them that you'll miss opportunities to actually be merciful to them or towards them. And so we're going to jump into the middle of this chapter to be Jonah's further response. So go ahead, if you haven't already, turn to Jonah chapter 4. We'll pick up in verse 5. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get into the text. God, we thank you this morning for your mercy and your grace, the whole series that we looked at over these last several weeks. God, we pray that one more time that this word would not return void, that your word would penetrate our hearts and our lives in a way, God, that makes us turn towards you, in a way that makes us look more and more like you. God, I pray whether it's people here in the room or people online or people who couldn't make it this week who will go back and listen later on. God, that you would allow us to look more and more like you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Jonah chapter 4, verse 5. It says, Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So we remember, Jonah had gone, he preached repentance, he saw this mass repentance happening. Well, Jonah doesn't stick around like we might think. You would think, like, this is a prophet of God, he's going to stick around, and that he's going to have influence, right, and kind of teach and train and equip, you know, like, this is what ministers do, right? That's why you go to seminary. You go, man, I'm going to now go and equip these people and train these people. Instead, he flees the city, and he naturally wants to be comfortable, so he makes himself a shelter. And so he basically gives himself a box seat, I keep thinking of this week, for some reason, Mount Tabor Park. If you guys have been to Mount Tabor, it's a really lovely park in our city, right? It kind of sits up high on a hill, and you kind of oversee the city. I feel like Jonah, I mean, that's still in the city, but you know, like Jonah like goes to Mount Tabor Park or maybe Rocky Butte, and he's like, I'm getting closer to getting out of the city, but I'm going to sit up really high and just kind of watch the city and what happens because he's hoping that God will change his mind. He's hoping that God will actually rain down wrath and destruction on this city. So he's like, I'm going to get the hightail out of here, and I'm going to wait, and I'm going to watch the city basically burn to the ground because this is what he's hoping for. Now, at this point, Jonah is hot, both emotionally, he's angry, and he's expressing that anger, but he's also physically hot. He said he was in the desert, right? So that 115-degree day that we had a couple weeks ago, and even though we're kind of, we hit a second heat wave, which wasn't nearly as bad, thank God, by his mercy and grace, but Jonah's like, he's hot, so he's physically angry, or he's, he's emotionally angry, but he's also physically hot. But notice his anger is not displayed by explosive outburst, okay? If you know me well enough, and my family doesn't need to say amen or shake their heads, but if I get really, really angry, I get very explosive, okay? Apparently, um, I think my, my own wife, my parents are watching, so i got to be careful I say this. I think my own wife and my brother-in-laws have all kind of noticed this about my family. Your family at times can yell, right? And so maybe your family's like that as well. And so we can get explosive. But Jonah here is not that way. Instead of an outburst, he has this quiet withdrawal. So sometimes I think we look at people and we think, man, they're quiet, like, oh, they're good, they're calm. And so some of you are like that. I feel like a lot of people in Portland are like that. 
But maybe you get angry at God. Or maybe you get angry at the church or someone in church. Maybe it's me. And instead of having a conversation, communication's key. Instead of talking about uh, maybe having an awkward confrontation or even an argument, instead you quietly slip away. And what do you do instead? You ghost the church and you ghost God. And that's what we see with Jonah here. He just quietly slips away. And so it's still angry. It's still just as bad as the explosive outburst. It's just a lot easier to see whenever I'm angry. It's a lot easier to see whenever I'm going through something emotionally and you can call it out much easier. But I think it's just as bad. In some ways, I'd say it's almost more dangerous when you're doing it the quiet way because everyone looks at you and go, well, they're good. They didn't have an outburst. They're fine. And you're like, well, you don't know what's going on eternally until one day they're just gone. And you go, what happened to that individual? Where are they? Why do they no longer want to be in church? Why do they no longer say they're, they're a follower of Jesus? And that's kind of what we see happening with Jonah here. And so what we see right here is we see this sharp contrast between Jonah leaving the city and Jesus leaving the city. When Jonah went outside the city, he was hoping to witness its condemnation. He was hoping to see the destruction of the city. When Jesus left the city, he went to die on a cross to accomplish his salvation. So we see this sharp contrast between Jesus and Jonah. Jonah was hoping he left and it would get destroyed. Jesus left the city for itself to save it. And so Jonah has to be an example. I was thinking about this, like, we, we like to say we're everyday missionaries where we live, work, and play, so every single one of us. But Jonah has to be the worst missionary of all time based on his life, right? Like he rejected what God told him to do. He went through this crazy path, and he finally obeys, and then he's angry at God for basically being a successful missionary. Like he's got to be the worst missionary ever, which is a great reminder for us today. I think sometimes we look to leaders, right, ministry leaders, church leaders, and we've seen a lot of this over the last really probably forever, but especially the last three to five years. It seems like there's all these leaders, these really known people in ministry who have this, what we call a fall from ministry. Whether it's something they did immoral or something abusive or something that seems like they were living a, a double life. And a lot of times we'll look at that, our generation, rightfully so in some ways, and we'll kind of we'll, we'll go to the distance at the church. But this is a reminder for us that if you were to look at Jonah's life alone, I think as a Christ follower, you go, well, I don't want to be a Christ follower. Right? He's hoping for the wrath and destruction in the way he's living his life. But it's just a good reminder for us to focus on Jesus. And our hope should be in Jesus and Jesus Christ alone, not the individual. And so here we find Jonah. He's chillaxing up on the hill. He's kind of created this little shelter for himself. So I can imagine like one of those little beach covers that you'll see and families will kind of sit up underneath it. So he's, he's chillaxing. And then verse 6 comes in. It says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. That alone has got to be kind of strange. You're sitting there and this plant just grows up that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So this is the second use of the verb, appoint, in this book. The first was in chapter 1, verse 17. And this time, God has something for Jonah's pouting. So Jonah's kind of pouting that's hot. He creates this, this structure, which probably only shaded him a little bit. And God appoints this plant with large leaves to grow up over Jonah to give him more shade and he did that in one day's time, which is a sign of God's mercy. Once again, the tree just grew up and kind of shaded him, all right? Now, God can do that. I mean, even this morning, now, God chose not to do this, but you guys can start praying with me, but there's issues with our soundboard because I just don't know what I'm doing, and I can't get my wireless microphone to work. I'm like, God, I literally prayed this this morning. God, just please let it work, you know? Do you ever have those prayers? Well, it's almost like Jonah just sat there and just, boom, the tree grew up, and it happened. So God can do that. God, if you'll do that, it'd be a great sign for all of us next week. No, just kidding. Um, so the story reveals that the Lord gives this provision to save him from his discomfort. He's literally rescuing him from his, from, from his discomfort of what he's experiencing in the dry desert heat. This plant then serves two purposes. The first purpose, it provides shade for Jonah. So the plant serves as a God's indication of the inadequacy and futility of Jonah's attempt to provide shade for himself. 
So think about things you try to do in life and you try to cover, right? And we can, we can accomplish a certain amount. Like even as a church, we can do a certain amount really apart from God. But for it to actually work, for us to actually make disciples that make disciples and plant churches that plant churches, we need God. And so it shows this inaccuracy of this little shelter that he, that he had made that it didn't actually stand a chance against the elements of the harsh surroundings. You know, maybe he made a good shelter for a Portland-type summer, but not for a Texas-type summer, essentially is what it's saying. But then God's plant was the counterpart to Jonah's shelter. So this plant represented more than just a plant, but it was God's graciousness and abundant provision. And it trumped the shelter that Jonah had built. Like I imagine, you know, I don't know for sure what kind of tree, maybe like a big banana tree with a big huge leaves or a big palm tree or something that just covered him that was very noticeable. It was God. So that's the first thing. It provided shade for Jonah. The second thing that it provides, or the second purpose, is to deliver him from his misery. So the author again hints at the inaction of Jonah's own construct, that be that physical or ideological, that he was miserable. And they couldn't do it in and of himself. He needed God to show up and for God to actually do something. And so Jonah, it says he was exceedingly glad. Now, I noted this. At least he is honest with his self-centeredness at this point. He's exceedingly glad that God's taking care of him, that I've built the shelter. Now God has, has put this nice tree over me. It's benefiting me. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times that's how we are. We expose our self-centeredness to go, God, take care of me. God, take care of my bills. God, take care of my car. God, take care of my family. God, take care of this to the point that we neglect the needs of anyone else around us. We looked at this in the Sermon on the Mount when we talked about caring for, um, you know, provide us, give us this day our daily bread. And we think about that prayer, but that's saying give us, not just give me. So yes, we want to take care of our own needs, but sometimes God might be using you to answer that prayer for others. So think about the others in our church family. Think about the others in our community. Think about others in our city who are living on the streets. God's answer to that prayer might be you. So you might be actually the answer to that prayer. But Jonah here, is, he's being self-centered. He's, he's expressing this pleasure and, and salvation that God has given him, which underscores the contrast between his anger at the salvation that was offered to the Ninevites in verse 1 of chapter 4. So here he is. He's exceedingly glad. He's got this palm tree hanging over him. You can almost see the pina colada in his hand. But now things change. Let's look at verse 7. He says, But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. So that it withered. This has got to be such a weird thing. You're sitting there, you're, 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 you're relaxing, you got this tree over there, and you see this worm pop up. So it, it ate the plant, that it withered. And then it says, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So here we see God appointed a worm, and then it says God appointed a scorching east wind. So here's the third and fourth use of the, the verb appoint, which continues to show that God is sovereign over all of creation, right? We see he's sovereign over, over the sea and, and the raging. We see he's sovereign over the, the whale or the large fish, he's sovereign over the plant, he's sovereign over this worm. It's something we've seen throughout this book that God is over all of creation. Job 1, 21, the second half says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so we see this plant as God's mercy, and then when the, the plant withered, it left Jan Jonah exposed to the intense heat that was around him. It's the moment that Jonah needed the plant the most in his mind that God took it away, which places Jonah in the very situation he wished on Nineveh. It's like God is showing him that you want me to rain down judgment and wrath on this city that's full of people. I'm going to show you a small glimpse of what that's like. You need this shade right now, right? Let's just imagine it's that 115-degree day that we had real recently. We can all remember that. And you're sitting out in the middle of a blacktop parking lot with the sun just scorching down on you. 
right? You'd be like, oh, this is the moment that I need some kind of shelter. I need an umbrella, something to shave me the most. And so God is showing him that you want me to give mercy to you, but you don't want me to give mercy to others. So then he brings up this worm. The worm symbolizes God's judgment. Jonah just doesn't understand God's love. And so I feel like he's shown him time and time and time again, but God comes back and says, but I don't understand yours. You value plants more than people. Now, I understand we're a very green city, and we can say we're like tree huggers to a degree as well, and God does want us to care for creation, right? He's sovereign overall, but there's kind of these priorities, right? If it comes to taking care of humans and people versus plants, I think we're all going to say that humans are the right ones, right? Plants aren't wearing masks right now, and they're not social distancing. People have been, okay? So I think we're all on the same page there. So God's saying, Jonah, you don't understand my mercy. I don't understand yours. You care more about these things that aren't eternal than the things that are. And so experience shows us that self-centered people, don't look at the person you're sitting next to, self-centered people are the most unhappy people. They constantly complain. They're never satisfied. They take joy out of life. Have you ever been someone who's just so self-centered? You're like, they're just not a joy to be around, and they suck the joy out of my life. I feel like i got to walk on eggshells around them because they're not joyful, and they give little joy to others and very little glory to God. This is Jonah. This is the point where we have found Jonah. Look at this again. He's on a hill outside the city, looking for shade by himself. He didn't bring a group of friends with him. He's there by himself, probably because he was a joy kill. No one wanted to be around him. And so we see the Lord giveth in verse six and the Lord taketh in verse seven. And so when God's providence determined to give him shade, Jonah was what? He was happy, right? This is whenever you feel like you're getting blessings in life. You got an extra paycheck. You got a bonus. You got stimulus that you didn't think you were gonna get. It's like God giveth, right? God's providence saw fit and I'm feeling good. And then when God's providence determines to give him a time of fainting, Jonah balks. You know, this is when all all of a sudden you got an unexpected car repair like I did this week, and it triples in price before you get to actually pay it. And when when things just don't go the way that you were hoping they would go. And then Jonah kind of balks at this. He goes, man, God's when it's in my favor, God, I'm all for it. But whenever it's not in my favor, God, I'm not for it. Jonah likes mercy. But he's not like seeing how precarious and desperate life is without it. He likes mercy when it benefits him, but not when it benefits others. And so he feels that others should not receive the mercy that he himself is receiving. It's almost like Jonah thinks he is the Savior himself. James Boyce reminds us, he said, Jonah should have perished miserably inside the great fish. He had renounced God. It would have been only proper if God had renounced him. Yet God had showed him great mercy, first in bringing him to repentance and then in saving him and recommissioning him to preach in Nineveh. Jonah had a certainly experienced mercy at the hand of God, but there was a long journey across the desert, and man's memory is short. Jonah had forgotten God's mercy and was therefore ill-prepared to appreciate it when God showed the same mercy to others. Are we not the same way? It's like, you know, he talks about the long journey through the desert. We have a long journey through life, right? Now, I know once someone comes to the end of their life, it feels like it was short and it was faint, but the days are long, Right? The weeks seem long, the months seem long, the years seem long. So this journey we're inviting everybody on, it seems long. And we easily forget God's mercy. We easily forget God's grace. You know, it can be week to week. You can be in a week where you're like, man, God is blessing me and things are going great. My family's doing well. You know, and then the next week something goes bad. And you're like, thanks, God. Why did you do that? I saw a, a friend of mine, a guy named Andy Squires, who's a really good worship leader if you listen to worship music at all. And he has, I think, six children. How he does that, I'm not sure. But he has six children, and one of his daughters just said, was just being honest with him. And, she, and he's, all his children are kind of becoming young adults and just said, Dad, prayer doesn't work. God doesn't answer prayer. And I wanted to be like, 
tell her to read Jonah, you know, but it's because it's not working the way that she wants it to work, right? That's not, not answering that. And so from week to week, you may find yourself in that same place because this life is a long journey and we forget God's mercy. Maybe instead of hoping for the destruction of someone else, that person you think doesn't deserve God's mercy, we need to think how much we like mercy and how impoverished we are without mercy. Uh, just recently, I learned of a, a family, uh, an individual specifically, but the family itself, they're going through a hard time. And prior, uh, maybe two, three years ago, I had a, a conflict, a run-in with this individual. And so I'm just going to be a, a transparent here. When I first heard what they're going through, I was tempted in my heart to think, good, he's getting what he deserves, right? Everything's going to come back around. He's going he's to get his now. But in that moment, as I started to think that, it's like I experienced God's mercy and grace, and God softened my heart in a way that I didn't expect because I was like, no, this is what this person deserves to get. And my, my, my initial thinking changed as God spoke to my heart and softened my heart. Instead, I prayed for this person. I reached out to them, called them, actually said, let's grab coffee just so I can encourage and pray for them. And that wasn't the response I thought I was going to have. And maybe you've experienced that too, where you're like, I'm mad at this person. I'm never going to give up. You know, maybe you've, maybe you've been that way with your spouse. You get in an argument, you blow up, and you're like, that's it. I'm done. I'm not going to give in here. And then you find the spirit of God kind of softening your heart. You know, you kind of get some time and separation away, or maybe it's a a, a, another family member, a roommate, or a coworker, and you find the spirit of God softening of your heart. And so we see that the unrighteous anger can make you hope for the judgment of God on others that you would not want for yourself in verses five through eight. And God's purpose hopefully became clear why he sent the wind. God's purpose and, and why he wanted to expose Jonah to his unmitigated justice. And now let's turn to verses nine through 11, where we're gonna see that the unrighteous anger can make you miss opportunities to be merciful the way that God is merciful. Pick up in verse nine. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Now, as God had questioned Jonah's, uh, the justice of Jonah's anger of the salvation of the Ninevites, he is now questioning the justice of Jonah's anger over the destruction of the plant. Jonah feels justified over his right to be angry over the vine because it was providing him shade. He was enjoying it. But Jonah languishes under God's display of pure justice and repeats his wish to die. He genuinely desires death and a way to escape the unmitigated justice of God here. And Jonah moves from talking to God to talking to himself. Now, this is the third time in four chapters. Like, this is a short book. This is, this is a really short book. That's why I chose it for the summer. I knew we could get through it. You know, Sermon on the Mount took us like seven months. Jonah took us June and July. But in the three times in four chapters, he expresses his desire to quit on life. It's like he just doesn't grasp God's grace. He doesn't trust God's ways because time and time again, he goes, I'm done. I'm ready for it to be over. And so for Jonah, death offers more freedom than the difference from God. So rather than give up on God, he wants to give up on his earthly existence altogether. He says, I'm just gonna walk away from it because I know better than you, right? That's essentially what he's saying. God, I know better than you. I know better the days of my life, the time of my life. And so I'm ready to be done. So Jonah was trapped in this deep-seated resentment towards God. That is what he's expressing. That's what he's experiencing. Colin Smith says, whatever work you do for the Lord, it may be that the greatest contribution you will make to the advance of Christ's kingdom is to love him still through pain and suffering. That quote really hit me this week as I was preparing, right? So for Jonah, that may have been his greatest work is to continue on in spite of, instead of saying, God, I'm done. I don't wanna do this any longer. I think about our daily lives, right? Most of our lives are pretty, 
like just mundane, right? You're just going through the rhythms. You're getting up and working, whether it's online or back in an office or a hybrid of those things. You're, you're parenting. You're just trying your best to make it through life. Yeah, there's joyful times, there's fun times, and there's just a lot of mundane stuff. And you might even think, man, these are things I'm, I'm doing for God and, and ministry and all those things. And you think, man, I'm not getting any credit, right? No one's giving me credit. And God's, God never promises you'll get credit. And it should be about God getting credit. And I think this kind of hit me in, in conjunction with the soul care that I'm going through with another pastor, which essentially is just make sure that pastors care well for their soul, is that the greatest contribution any of us will make to the advance of Christ's kingdom is to love him through pain and suffering, to be consistent in our love for God, whether he giveth or whether he taketh away. I think that's one of the takeaways of this story for us. And now we see the final interaction that happens between God and Jonah in verses 10 and 11. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? All the vegans said amen. <laughs> um, finally, Jonah expresses concern over something that is perishing here. But he's expressing his care over a plant. Once again, he's not expressing the care over the 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left hand. Now, what does that mean? It's an idiom for being morally and spiritually unaware that they don't know the right hand from their left hand. And it's probably referring to the entire population of Nineveh which was a great, great city, a huge city of influence at this time. And so we see that Jonah is concerned about a plant. But the Lord, on the other hand, he's concerned about sinners in Nineveh, the entire population. And Jonah desires mercy on something temporal and non-human. He says, God, please save the plant. But why do you want the plant to be saved? So he could have shade. God, please save this so that I can have shade. But God determines to give mercy to the evil people of Nineveh. And so the odd question that's raised here by Jonah in these words of Jonah is this. It says, if Jonah will not allow God to have compassion on Nineveh for the sake of the 120,000 people that, are, that God created and cares for, will Jonah not allow God to have compassion on Nineveh for the sake of the animals at least? Since after all, Jonah was willing to have compassion on a plant. So I kind of think that's what God is showing him there. That, hey, there's also, there's more plants and there's animals can I at least care about those, Jonah? You know, it's almost like God's just having this, I actually got kind of a smirk on his face. Like, Jonah, am I allowed to care about the animals in Nineveh? Am I allowed to care about the plants in Nineveh because there's more than just one tree? You know, am I allowed to do that? But this question is left unanswered. It actually doesn't answer the question for us so that we, the readers of the book, can answer this question for ourselves. Now, we're the exact same way as Jonah today, right? It's easy, I think, to study the book of Jonah and pick on Jonah. Go, look at Jonah. He was foolish. He was wrong. He disobeyed. But throughout this whole time, hopefully you've been holding up a mirror to yourself and go, man, look at me. Look at Matt. Look, don't say amen. Look at yourself <laughs> and say, we're the exact same way today when our computer crashes or our phone screen cracks or our washer breaks or we don't have AC in a heat wave, right? And we're like, why, God? Why? You know, once again, I, I know myself well enough. If my car is me I'm messing up, I'm pounding it and go, work, you know, like that does any good. Instead, my hand's going to hurt for the next week because I can hit pretty hard. I'm like, oh, man, you know, like, oh, why won't this just work? We're the same way. We will use all this energy worrying about things that don't really matter for eternity, but then we'll put very little concern and focus on things that do matter for eternity, such as people. People in the world have never experienced God's mercy and grace and forgiveness. We care about the dumbest things, even before the service. I'm trying to pop my phone out so I can put it there for the live stream for you wonderful folks at home, and I crack part of my phone case. I'm like... Man, just cracked my phone case, right? So I'm, I'm upset, and God's like, here you are. I'm going to make a fool of you in front of everybody. 
Because like, you care about that, but you care about that the same way you care about things of eternity, about people who are lost on their way from separation from God. You know, I think about the Pacific Northwest, I think about Portland. And though I love this city now, there was a time that I didn't love this city. I think it's the greatest city in the Pacific Northwest, and I would argue that. We have way better brunch and coffee than Seattle. Sure, they got some of the lot, but we're just so much better than them. But this isn't where I wanted to be. I wanted to be in Denver. Like, my heart had been in Denver since about 2008 when Andrea and I first got married. And I was like, I want to go to Denver. I'm determined to go to Denver. I've had like four or five job opportunities, and I've never gotten there. I almost went to seminary there. Like, God, this is where I'm going to go. So back in 2015, when we first visited Portland, in my mind, it fit the description of Nineveh. And I was tempted to respond like Jonah. In fact, I've told you guys this before, my very, one of my last trips here, because we took multiple trips, like, God, are you sure? We're just like feeling things out. We didn't have enough faith just to move here. We're like, we got to check this place out. And I was um, with, with a, who's a, a coach of mine, a guy named Wes, who some of you have met, and we were eating pizza, and I couldn't even like eat it. I had no appetite. And if you know me, I like to eat. And I was just like, I'm ready to get on a plane, go the opposite direction to, from, from Portland to North Carolina, and never come back. But then God started to change my heart. As I studied, I learned about the city. I learned about the, the great need here, about the lostness that's represented in the Pacific Northwest. Learning there's only one church for every 12,000 people and that the average church that it here is made up of only 50 people. And so if God is grieved by the 120,000 people in Nineveh, then what about the 650,000 people in our city? What about the two and a half million people in our metro? What about the 15 million people in the Pacific Northwest, the majority who don't know Jesus? Sure, we're in the U.S., so they may have heard of Jesus, and they may have heard some kind of gospel presentation, and maybe went to a VBS when they were a kid, but the majority of what studies show us don't know Jesus. Do you not think that God is grieved by them? That's why our heartbeat at Sojourn from the very first day has been to take the gospel to people who don't know him, and by God's grace, that heartbeat will never change, at least as long as I'm part of this church, as long as I'm in leadership. People can come and go. We can have a revolving door, but as long as I'm part of this, that will never change. Our heartbeat is to take the gospel to people who don't know Jesus and to make disciples of Jesus, people who love him, people who look more and more like him. I mean, that's really what discipleship is, people who look more and more like Jesus because we know that God has compassion on Portland. We said that in the book of Jonah, God has compassion on Nineveh. We know this is God's heart. We know that God has compassion on the nations, for that is his heart. And we know that God is grieved for the losses found in our city, our region, our nation, and our world. And so my question for you this morning, church, is are you grieved over the losses in Portland? Are you grieved over the losses in our region, our nation, and our world? I know the, this, is the, this is when you say the right answer, right? The Sunday school answer is like, yes, you know, or when you answer Jesus. But are you actually grieved to the point of doing something about it? There's one thing to say yes, I know it functionally. I know I'm supposed to say yes, like I'm in a church setting, but are you actually doing something about it? That's what our whole study this summer on Wednesday nights, Radical Together, was all about. Us collectively, as a community, as a family, doing something about it as we recognize the need and going, now the opportunity is in front of you. Or like Jonah, are you sitting up on the hill watching, waiting for the city's destruction while you try to find more shade and comfort for yourself? Because I think functionally, I think in, in the church world, a lot of times, this is what a lot of us do. We're just like Jonah. We try to find shade and comfort for ourselves. Go, man, I'm going to make it through this life as best as I can. So I'm going to you know, get a, the nicest house I can, the nicest car, and fill myself with comfort and luxury. And I'm just going to ride this thing out until I go to heaven and spend eternity with God. You know, I don't think any of us would say that, but functionally, I think that's how a lot of times we operate and function in the church. Acts 17, 26. It says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. 
having determined a lot of periods of the, and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So what this tells us is that you are here because God handpicked you to be here, regardless if you like it or not. And that's the whole point with Jonah. It didn't matter that Jonah didn't like it. It didn't matter Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. God handpicked Jonah to go. And God was determined to see his plans prosper and his plans succeed. So I talk to people sometimes, and I understand, even in the church world, you may go, I don't want to be in Portland. Trust me, I didn't want to come here either. And you may still not want to be here. And people might go, maybe you were born here or maybe you weren't. It doesn't matter. But if you are here right now in this moment, it's because God handpicked you to be here for this allotted period of time, which means the posture of our hearts, the, the prayer of our hearts should be, God, I know your heart for this city. And a lot of times I don't have that same heart, but will you give me your heart for that city? You know, there's groups of people and there's, there's days where I'm walking, I might see a, an individual and I think, oh man, what are they thinking? What are they doing, right? And, and then I, I have to stop and say, God, give me your heart for these people. God, I have, a, maybe I have a disdain for this group here. Or maybe I'm uncomfortable by this individual. God, give me your heart for these people. That needs to be the prayer of our hearts. And that way when he calls, our answer is yes. Whether he calls us to stay in Portland, whether he calls us to go somewhere else in this country, whether he calls us to go overseas, it's like, God, give us our heart for these people. Because you see, it's when our hearts aren't in alignment with God's heart that we get angry and bitter and depressed like Jonah. Somehow Jonah had gotten out of sync with God. You know, we talk about prayer. I know we've talked about that a good bit this summer at Sojourn. And, you know, prayer's difficult and challenging to do. And why do we do midweek prayer? Like, it seems meaningless. We could be out sharing the gospel during that hour. We could be out serving the homeless during that hour. We could be out doing trash camp or any other thing. But it's so our hearts as a church will be in an alignment and sync with the heart of the Spirit of God. That's why we do it. And Jonah somehow got his heart out of sync with God. Jonah thought he knew it all. Jonah thought, I've graduated beyond actually needing God. I know all about God. I can teach all about God. And people even repent when I do it. But he got to where he thought he didn't need the Spirit of God himself. He'd gotten out of sync. And so maybe here this morning, and, or maybe you're online this morning, and you're miserable because you might be done with God in your mind. You might be done with church in your line. But let me tell you something, there's good news. He is not done with you. Which is why, even in this story, we see God's heart for both the masses. We see God's heart for Nineveh. We see God's heart for for Portland and for individuals in Jonah, but also the individual in you. And you might say, well, how do you know God's not done with me? How do you know that God's not done with me, Matt? I know God is not done with you because one, you're still here. Okay, don't turn off your computer. You're still here. Two, in his providence, you're hearing this message this morning, which is a sign that God is not done with you. And third, you'll have an opportunity to respond today, which I'll explain here in just a moment. And so the ch- close of this chapter is a story that's left unfinished, but that's the whole point of the writing. The story of Jonah should force us to contemplate our personal destiny. There is no conclusion because it summons us to write the final paragraph. Maybe we'll do that on a Wednesday night. It remains unfinished in order for us to write our own conclusion to its message. For you are Jonah. I am Jonah. We should see ourselves in this man's life. We too should stand in God's mercy and grace daily, which should cause us to be obedient to his commands and to call on our lives to the praise of his glorious grace. Above all, what Jonah presents to us in this story is that God is sovereign. God is holy. God is omnipotent. He's a God who's full of mercy and grace. Mercy to the point of sending Jesus his only son, to the cross of Calvary to die for your sins and for my sins and the sins of the world. And so the offer he is giving to all of us then is anyone who is willing to come to the Savior, pleading the mercy of God, will find God's mercy wide enough to enter into eternal life. That is good news. And so here's how we're gonna respond this morning, church. Here's how we're gonna finish 
the, the series in Jonah that we've looked at this entire summer. First, we're going to respond to the act of communion. And so for those of us who are in Christ, we are reminded when we take communion again of God's mercy and grace. And so the, the bread, and, and, and if you're at home, just take a moment and grab a, a cracker or a bread or, or something along those lines. So this, this little wafer for us, this bread, it represents Christ's body being broken for us and being crucified on the cross for the sins of the world. So that would include you, that includes me, that includes Portland, that includes Nineveh, that includes every people group, tongue, tribe, and nation. And then the juice that we take and drink, it's representative of Christ's blood that was shed for the sins of the world. Now it's possible this morning that you found yourself in a place like Jonah. Maybe you've gone through a season that, that you're just not sure anymore and you're just angry at God. You're angry at the church and you're kind of at a distance. That's okay because God's mercy and grace is still available for you. God's mercy and grace still covers you and he's inviting you to get right with him today. And so take a few moments before responding. Don't just rip into the wafer, which these things can be kind of hard to get into. Don't just rip into the wafer and don't just rip into the juice and go, cool, I just went through the motions, I'm done. But actually take a few moments. It's okay if the song finishes and you haven't opened it yet. But take a few moments to, to just reflect on what God is teaching you this summer, to reflect on what God has been teaching you about his mercy and grace in the book of Jonah, and to be reminded again what the elements of communion represent. And then the second way we respond to those of you who aren't in Christ, those who I like to say aren't in Christ yet. Our invitation is for you to receive the offer that Jesus offers you of his mercy and grace today by recognizing that you too are a sinner in need of a savior. And the good news is the savior of the world. Jesus is waiting on you with arms wide open, ready to wrap his love and mercy and grace around you. And if that's you this morning, you'd like to make that decision, let us know. If you're online, you can just type the word respond and someone will follow up with you because we want to make sure that offer is given to every single person, every man, woman, child. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to move into a time of response this morning. Pray with me, church. God, we come to you this morning recognizing that we are at your mercy and your grace. God, we, we recognize that we too are like Jonah, God, that we fail and fall short daily. But thankfully, God, you are God who is slow to anger and wrath, that you are God full of mercy and grace, and you are there for us time and time and time again. So God, I ask this morning that as we respond, that we would be reminded again of what it means and what it represents, God, when we take this bread and take this juice of your body broken for us, your blood shed for us, so that we can be made right with you. God, that we too can look more and more like Jesus. God, I pray that there's anyone who can hear my voice, who heard this message this morning, who doesn't know you. God, that you are poking and prying their hearts, that you're drawing them to yourself, and they will respond in salvation this morning and receive your mercy and grace for the first time. God, it's by your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.